Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Blair Jeruin Bullock, visiting assistant professor of law at Tulane University. We'll be discussing her article, Uncovering Harassment and Retaliation, which is forthcoming in the Alabama Law Review. I'll have a link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Blair, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you for having me, Andrew. Blair, I wondered if we could start the conversation by situating your goals in writing this article. What open questions did you set out to answer? And maybe with that, what do we currently know before this article about the nature of workplace harassment, workplace discrimination, and retaliation that individuals might face if they raise these concerns in the workplace? And how does this existing knowledge and literature fit into the questions that you set out to answer here? Absolutely. I think, you know, that your framing of the question kind of is where the framing of my paper began. We know a good bit about harassment and discrimination in the workplace. Of course, we know that both are prevalent. A recent EEOC task force report found her estimated that sexual harassment could be as high as 70% of women in the workplace have experienced it at some time during their employment. And of course, we know that discrimination is real. We know the gender pay gap has been estimated to be upwards of 85% that women make only 85% of what men make and much lower even for black women an estimated about 61%. So we know that both of those things are prevalent. My paper focusing on sexual harassment. So that EEOC number is anywhere from 30 to 70% of women have experienced sexual harassment in the workplace. And we know a lot or a good bit about reporting harassment. We know that generally victims don't report. That same EEOC report has said that that number could be as low as 30% of victims do not report the harassment at all. And a much lower number formally report the harassment. And it's been hypothesized through hypothetical surveys or through surveys of a small number of victims of harassment that one reason that victims of harassment don't report is because they fear retaliation. But what we don't know much about is the prevalence of retaliation in the workplace and how an employer does respond to harassment once they're alerted that it has occurred in their workplace. And the reason we don't know much about this is really data limitation. And so what I thought out to do in this paper is to just provide a little more information about retaliation, specifically retaliation following harassment, because especially as Me Too has exposed harassment as prevalent in the workplace and has encouraged victims to report, we have to be fearful that that means retaliation or an adverse employment action might come with that increase in reporting. And so specifically, I was interested in, you know, getting some numbers on the prevalence of retaliation in the workplace following harassment and whether there are any specific determinants of an employer's response to sexual harassment or harassment in general in the workplace. Meaning, are there characteristics of the employer, of the victim, of how the victim responds, of the harassment itself? 
that make it more likely that a victim of harassment experiences some form of adverse employment action as a result of that harassment. So you have done an empirical, a novel empirical study in this paper, and I'd like to get to the design and some of the findings and implications of your study in a moment. But I'm thinking about sort of the lay conception of what discrimination or harassment in the workplace might look like, or what retaliation in the workplace might look like. Do you see any gaps between what the lay conception, between what those things are, and what the legal standards for that conduct is? And are there any potential gaps in those standards that might persuade a worker not to report if he or she has experienced any of these things? There are some gaps in the legal standards, a couple of gaps that this paper kind of touches on, both some differences in how harassment is treated from other forms of discrimination, which I think is important to highlight. And then, as you say, is maybe differences in how a victim might view harassment and how the law treats liability for harassment. So the first one that's often discussed is the severe or pervasive requirement. So just to kind of lay out how harassment is prohibited in the workplace under federal law, of course, there are a variety of state laws that address it as well. But there are a number of federal statutes that prohibit discrimination, right, on a number of protected classes. So Title VII, protecting employees against discrimination on the basis of race, sex, national origin, color, and religion. And then we also have protections for age discrimination and disability discrimination. And over time, harassment has been considered a form of discrimination under those statutes. But harassment is narrowly defined, right? It's defined as only conduct that is severe or pervasive, such that it actually affects the employee's workplace, right? So it has to be because of one of those protected categories, right? So the actions taken by the harasser have to be because the victim is a woman or because the victim is Black. And the conduct has to be severe or pervasive. So that's one disconnect, right, is that an employee might believe that a one-off comment about their sex qualifies as sexual harassment, but it's not protected under the law. And that difference kind of leads to a few loopholes in the law that I do think create this kind of gap that you're discussing. So specifically for retaliation, These statutes also make it illegal for an employer to act adversely against the employee who reports the unwanted conduct. But for harassment, the employee that reports has to have a reasonable belief that the conduct was actionable, right? So meaning the conduct really has to be severe or pervasive for the employee to be protected under the retaliation standards as well. So that's one of the gaps. And there are a couple of other very nuanced liability standards for harassment that differ from discrimination that this paper touches on and that many papers have touched on previously, but that might lead, maybe, you know, maybe the employee itself isn't aware of these standards of liability, but because it trickles down to the ultimate liability for the employer, it could affect the employer's response. So the employer or HR might be aware that liability is less likely to occur and so then be more likely to take an adverse action against the employee, if that makes sense. So it might not be that the employee itself is aware of the liability standards, 
But ultimately, the liability extenders affect the likelihood that the employer is going to be responsible for whatever action it takes in response to the harassment or for not preventing the harassment. With these differing standards, these differing legal standards, is there any way we might model those into how an employer might make decisions with these standards in the backdrop? And what kinds of corporate behavior would we expect to see under this type of modeling with these standards in place? Yeah, I think, as I said before, so your previous question was kind of, would these standards affect an employee's response? And maybe we think not so much because an employee might not be aware of the standards of liability, you know, when they're determining whether or not they report harassment. But we certainly, as economists, assume that legal liability does make a difference when employers are uh, determining how to act. And so if there are these loopholes, these instances where an employer is not strictly liable for harassment in the workplace, but is only liable if a particular set of responses are met, and that's kind of the standard I haven't discussed previously, which maybe I'll kind of quickly walk through, is that so an employer is going to be liable for harassment if it's quid pro quo harassment, which means that a narrowly defined supervisor, someone who has the ability to economically impact an employee's, uh, so hire or fire or promote an employee, harasses that employee, and it results in a tangible employment action, meaning it is either, it's quid quid pro quo, like a tit for tat, you do the sexual act and you will be promoted, or you don't and you're not and the employee's not promoted. They will be strictly liable for that. But absent those two characteristics, so if the harasser is not one of those, a narrowly defined supervisor, or if it doesn't result in this narrowly defined tangible employment action, the employer is only going to be liable in a certain set of circumstances. So they will have an affirmative defense, even if the harasser is a supervisor. If the employee does not court the harassment and generally timely report the harassment, that's been interpreted by some courts to mean as little as two weeks. And if the employee takes some kind of preventative measure to prevent harassment in the workplace, generally that's just been interpreted to mean they have a policy against it, some kind of training in place to make sure that the employees are aware that sexual or harassment in general is illegal. So if the employer or HR or their attorney is aware that there are these loopholes, and that one or more of those characteristics are not met for liability, then of course we would think that that would ultimately affect how an employer responds. So specifically in this paper, I kind of very loosely model an employer's response to sexual harassment. And one way that it's easy for me to think about it, and of course this is like a a narrow example, but is the employer might think that the harassment is relationship-based, right? Meaning it's just something that's occurring between the harasser and the victim. I would hope that with the Me Too movement, we've learned that there are serial harassers and that's not true. But I do think this is was a common belief and we see it play out in a number of examples, cases discussed in the Me Too movement and a number of cases that you can find on Westlaw. But so the employer is responding to the harassment between the harasser and the victim. And let's say that the employer believes that one solution is to separate the two. And so it can transfer or fire the harasser or could transfer and fire the victim. And when making that decision, 
the employer is going to consider a number of factors. Uh, one factor would probably be the cost of replacing or the harasser or the victim. If the harasser is a supervisor, they're much more expensive to replace, right? Because of tenure, because of their experience, because of their responsibility in the workplace. Then the employer is also going to consider, you know, a number of factors such as is the harassment likely to occur again? Maybe the productivity of the victim has been decreased by the harassment. But where the law steps in is if there is the potential of legal liability, the employer is also going to think, how will my actions affect the likelihood that I'm liable either for harassment now or potentially harassment in the future? And that's where, you know, raising the likelihood of liability for the employer taking an action against the victim, right? Raising the cost of a potential litigation could have an impact and affect the employer's response. So I think this model, this model does a really good job of framing the idea of what actions in the workplace are legally actionable could give rise to liability and what could not and how the different actors in that environment might behave under that standard. A great contribution of this article is the empirical study that you do trying to tease out and to see if this model fits with the data that we see. Could you maybe introduce the empirical study that you do? What were some of your research questions for it in in terms of this broader project? What data did you use? How did you get it? And what was your study design and some of your empirical findings? Sure. So, you know, the model is kind of left with some predictions that are difficult to test because of a lack of data, but one being, you know, and because it's uncertain what the model would fully predict. So, for example, we just discussed how it's more expensive to replace a supervisor. So if it's supervisor harassment, absent any legal liability, we might expect the employer to be more likely to act against the victim if the harasser is a supervisor and the victim is not. But with the legal liability, I just told you, it is more likely that an employer is liable for supervisor harassment than other forms of harassment. And obviously with retaliation, it is more likely, with retaliation protections, it is more likely that the employer will be liable if they take an action against the victim. So these things would make it less likely, this threat of liability would make it less likely that the employer acts against the victim. But we also just discussed this kind of narrowing of employer liability standards that make it less likely that liability really is a threat. And so I was interested in knowing specifically two things. So my paper has two different empirical sections, uh, empirical studies. And the first being an analysis of data set that I got through a FOIA request writing my dissertation of all charges filed with the EEOC between 1990 and 2013. In that study, I was interested in knowing, are individuals with harassment claims more likely to also have a retaliation claim than individuals with any other form of discrimination claim? So is retaliation, very broadly speaking, is retaliation more common with harassment claims than it is with your typical discrimination claim? And that is what I found. I found that a harassment victim or someone filing a harassment charge with the EEOC 
is upwards of 93% more likely to include a retaliation charge than any other form of discrimination. So when I'm talking about any other form of discrimination, I'm getting an example being uh, someone that was denied a promotion because of their protected class. And part of that could be because of the differences in strict liability and because victims of harassment are required to internally report the harassment in order to trigger liability standards, which is not the case for any other form of discrimination. But more directly related to the model, I was interested in knowing, are there any characteristics, for example, the harasser is a supervisor and the victim is not, of the harassment or of the workplace or of the victim's response to the harassment that make it more likely that the employer takes an adverse action against the harassment victim in response to the harassment. And there are very few data sets, I really only know of two, that are nationally representative, but also that just ask in general uh, questions that are necessary to answer this question. What we need to know, right, is we need information about harassment, an individual's specific experience with harassment, who the harasser was, uh, the characteristics of it, such as how severe was it, what type of harassment was it, and the victim's response, and then, of course, the employer's response. And so what I use to analyze the determinants of an employer's response to harassment in the workplace is the 2016 Merit Systems Protection Board survey. So the MSPB is a federal agency that's kind of tasked with monitoring federal employees. And the last time they conducted this survey was in 1994, but they were tasked with replicating this survey in 2016 and broadly surveying federal government employees about their experience with sexual, not just sexual harassment, actually, harassment on a variety of protected categories within the previous two years of their employment. And luckily, it asked all of the questions that I really need to perform an empirical analysis. Most importantly, um, was the individual harassed in the previous two years? Characteristics of the harassment, who was the harasser? How did they respond to the harassment? And did they experience a number of adverse employment actions as a result of the harassment or their response to it? As we discussed with the model, kind of unclear what predictions we're left with when we consider legal liability. And so uh, this survey is in 2016. And so this is after Farragher and Ellerth, which is where we get that affirmative defense for when an employer is not liable for supervisor harassment, meaning an employer is not liable if the victim does not report it. And the standard for strict liability when there is supervisor harassment that results in a tangible employment action. And so the only two consistent determinants of a victim of harassment experiencing an adverse employment action. And when I say that in this paper, I'm specifically defining it as receiving worse work assignments, being transferred or reassigned, or being denied a promotion. I can separate that out. These results are significant if I just look at being transferred, if I just look at being denied a promotion. But 22% of the victims experienced some form of adverse employment action as a result of the harassment. And so that means that in addition to the unwanted conduct that they experienced, 
you know, either uh, teasing, uh, name calling, touching, stalking, they experienced one of these adverse employment actions we discussed as a result of the harassment. And the only two characteristics of the harassment, controlling for a number of characteristics that I have access to, that impacted whether or not the individual experienced one of those adverse employment actions was that they were harassed by their supervisor and that they reported the harassment. And so the largest effect is that men harassed by their supervisor were more than 100% more likely to experience an adverse employment action than men harassed by any other person associated with the workplace. It's a similar effect for women. That effect is also present for other forms of harassment, not just sexual harassment. And then victims who report the harassment are also more likely to experience one of these adverse employment actions. So taking this all together, the discussion about potential gaps in legal standard and the model and your empirical findings, where might that leave us in terms of potential reforms? Yeah, I think, you know, it highlights the call for the need for reform, right? Specifically, reform that's going to affect an employer's response. And so one way to think about this in the model that we discussed is we would expect that increasing the likelihood or the expected cost of liability for acting against the victim would hopefully make some difference. Right? And so there are a number of legal standards discussed in the paper and that we very, very quickly and briefly touched on earlier in our discussion that those standards could be strengthened such that an employer is more likely to be liable for acting against the victim right, or for not acting against the harasser. So one that we discussed is this requirement that the employee have a reasonable belief that the harassment was actionable. Maybe that standard's too high, right? And maybe getting rid of that reasonability requirement increases the likelihood that an employer is liable for retaliation. We can also expect that increasing the likelihood that the employer is liable for the harassment itself would have some impact because the employee is probably more likely to file a lawsuit if there is some form of retaliation that occurred than they would be otherwise. And so they'd have both a harassment claim and a retaliation claim. And if the employer is more likely to be liable for the harassment itself, then the employer would be less likely to act against the victim. And so closing those loopholes that we discussed, maybe addressing the requirement for a victim to have to internally report the harassment, if that's no longer a requirement for liability, then it's more likely that the employer would be liable for the harassment, could have an impact. And what we've seen in response to the Me Too movement is some states have addressed these standards when adopting legislation, specifically addressing sexual harassment in the workplace. But the majority are taking other steps that are also necessary, and that would also increase the likelihood of liability. So getting rid of non-disclosure or preventing non-disclosure agreements and settlement agreements addressing sexual harassment, removing damages caps for sexual harassment claims, increasing statutes of limitations. All of those are steps that are being taken by states that might address liability for sexual harassment. Less attention is being paid for liability for retaliation itself. And so that's something I call for in the paper. And 
obviously, as states or courts start to maybe close some of these loopholes and liability standards, expand the damages allowed for in sexual harassment cases, that gives us a great opportunity to test the effect, right, to see if these changes have some kind of effect on sexual harassment or retaliation in the workplace. Things that I would love to test in the future, unfortunately, again, we're stuck with these data limitations, right? So this specific survey limited to federal employees, but also last time it was conducted in 1994. And there are a few surveys that even ask a nationally representative sample about their experience with sexual harassment. But I think there are some ways to test the effect of these standards on harassment and retaliation in the workplace, and I'm hoping to be able to do so in the future. So apart from those kind of open questions, are there any key takeaways you would like our listeners to have from this conversation and from your article? Sure. I think probably my key takeaway that is particularly important as we recognize following the Me Too movement that harassment is prevalent, but there needs to be more attention paid to retaliation because As individuals are becoming aware of harassment and its prevalence in the workplace, hopefully more reporting is occurring and that we have seen an uptick in the filing of harassment claims with the EEOC since the movement began. But with that is coming an uptick in retaliation. And so I think in order to really address the problem, we need to consider those standards of liability that are going to potentially affect an employer's response to harassment once the employer becomes aware of it in the workplace. Our guest today has been Blair Jeroen Bullock, visiting assistant professor of law at Tulane University. We've discussed her article, Uncovering Harassment and Retaliation, which is forthcoming in the Alabama Law Review. I'll link to the article in the show notes for today's episode. Blair, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.